Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you are in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Today's guest is Ryan Marks. Ryan is the fourth generation CEO of USCO Cranes. USCO is a crane manufacturer and runway builder located in Elsip, Illinois, who celebrated their 100th year anniversary last year. So that kudos to you. Congratulations just on that fact. Um, Ryan started in the sales role at the company and quickly became the national sales manager after growing his region from two to $6 million in just two years. Um, his excellent communication skills and robust presence, uh, public presence coming from the years of sales experience has kind of put him in this really cool position to lead Yesco and uh, the team to the next phase of growth. Um, realizing people are the most crucial asset uh, to any company, Ryan is quoted saying, uh, as your company or as our people grow, our company grows. And as our company grows, the larger the impact we have with our customers and industries we support. So Ryan, with that said. Welcome to the show. Thank you guys, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, cool cool thing that you do, and I actually almost totally nerded out and was like, we, I saw a crane yesterday, literally we were doing our, our planning yesterday. There's this crane high in sky moving and it, we, were, well, we were in Skokie or where were we at, Will? Uh, yeah, I think it was Skokie, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, like, I should take a picture of this crane and send it to Ryan. And then I'm like, that is lame. That is super lame of me. But I thought about you yesterday. So um, really excited about this podcast. So uh, with that said, t- tell us a little bit more about you. I gave the kind of the, the snapshot, but tell us a little bit deeper about you, um, you know, how you became the CEO and then uh, the company in general. Sure. Well, you obviously hit on it. Um, we're a 101-year-old company and I'm a fourth generation owner. So um, I kind of had a direction to, to go and it was a direction I wasn't normally going to take. Um, I was actually going to become an attorney and uh, went, to, uh, went to school for uh, pre-law and uh, constitutional law and uh, uh, political science. And it wasn't until I got accepted to law school that my dad said either, you know, you're kind of going this route or, you know, I'm eventually going to let these private equity companies that call me every freaking week um, actually get somewhere with us. So uh, I decided that uh, we've got a lot of employees that have been with us for a very long time, a lot of families that we support and feed, and uh, I needed to give this a chance. So that's kind of what I did. And 16 uh, years later, I'm I'm a crane guy. That's super cool. Um, much better than being a lawyer and not, not against lawyers that are in the, in the audience here, but, uh, yeah, no, you, you made the right choice for sure. I appreciate that. Um, so obviously you started in the sales role as a company that, that was kind of the, the start there, um, before becoming the CEO. So, um, during our conversations, you'd mentioned building relationships and, you know, looking at those more tenured and like long time valued employees and like kind of leaning on them um, at the companies to, to kind of like learn the path, right? Because you weren't in it from a young, young age, you kind of started later. So where where did that concept come from? And, and what was the value that you got out of that leaning on those, you know, ten, more tenured employees? Yeah, so um, what I did was when I first kind of got here, 
is um, I, I realized that I, I've always been good at sales. I've always been able to, to sell and selling isn't talking, selling is listening and it's actively listening. Um, and I've, I've usually been pretty good at, pretty good at that. And so what I kind of did when I got here, because I didn't know a lot of knowledge on the crane business, the way they, my dad kind of started me out, he started me out selling what we call packaged goods in the, uh, in the Chicago market. And uh, that basically was meant that I can sell everything that we didn't actually build. Uh, I could sell other products that we sold uh, on top of that. So I went out and started knocking on doors and, you know, trying to find people to work with and that kind of thing. And, and I kind of found that the, the best way for me to do that was to find the old guy in the company, the old engineer or maintenance guy or, or somebody like that, and uh, just kind of buddy up to him and let him take me under his wing. Um, you know, my father did kind of a similar thing when he got into the industry after he was growing it past my grandfather. He found vendors and um, other people in the industry that knew it really well and just kind of said, hey, you know, teach me what you know and I'll follow along and, you know, we'll kind of go from there. Because one of the things that I've always, you know, kind of thought and learned is that, you know, I'm never going to invent the wheel better than the wheels already been invented. I just want to mimic what other people have done. So, you know, you had people in this company, they knew exactly what they wanted. They knew why they wanted it. And basically I, you know, get it for them. And, and that also gave me a lot of new knowledge as to, you know, what my job entailed and what I was trying to do on top of that. So it was a, not only a good way to sell, but it was a good way to learn. So is, and you mentioned listening instead of talking in sales. Um, that kind of fits in that model, right? Tell me what you want and need and tell me why you need it. And then, you know, you can, fi- you can find that thing or you can learn that that's a thing that needs to to be in place for that, those people. So that, that kind of lines up with what you're saying there. Um, so actually, how did, how did you get started in sales? Like where, where was that start? Like when did, how did you start being just a salesperson? Like not, not necessarily at the company, but just in generality. Oh, no. uh, probably when I was about 13 years old, um, I started selling uh, trial subscriptions for the Daily Southtown and then the, uh, the, the Herald. And I went door to door to people and I told them a sob story on how I was trying to pay for college. <laughs> Even though I was basically a sophomore in high school and I got paid, I got paid $6. Well, first $4 for, per subscription. And then I worked myself up in about a year to getting paid $6 per subscription. And I'd go out every night for a couple hours and somebody picked me up in a, <laughs> in a van, but you know, my mom met him. So it wasn't like some weird van or anything like that. And uh, I go out and I'd knock on doors and I try to sell newspapers. That's kind of where I started. And, you know, you learn a lot of different tactics and you learn a lot of different things like putting your foot in the door. I don't recommend it, but we did it and getting between the door and the, you know, the person and that kind of thing and all that kind of good stuff. Um, I used to have fun with it and go out there and talk like in an Irish accent sometimes the whole night, kind of like I'm, student from Ireland, like it was, I had a lot of fun with it, but uh, you know, that kind of started things. And then I've kind of always been in some sort of sales role. And I, I, I loved commission, right? I love the fact that my effort determined the amount of money that I was going to make. And I'm also driven a lot by money. So that was a really good motivator for me on top of it. So then I kind of rolled that into uh, other types of sales positions that I did before I came to USCO, I worked for a uh, sales training outfit, selling sales training for about six months. 
And I realized that, you know, you shouldn't be selling sales training and doing the trainings. You should be either selling something or doing something. And so that company didn't really work out. And then I worked for a uh, internet real estate company for a little while as an in the HR department, but it was the HR department just trying to get other realtors to come to work for that real estate firm. So it was more sales based as well. Um, and then after that, I kind of came to USCO. I was also a wedding dish jockey for 10 years and had my own DJ business for a while. So I had to sell clients on, on that as well. So. And your great personality. That's kind of where my sales background comes from, I guess you'd say. The sales, sales, sales. So then, yeah, no, totally. Um, so then the transition to CEO, what does that look like for you? Or what did that look like for you? So I guess what that kind of looked like is um, I never worked in the business when I was younger. You know, I wasn't the guy pushing the broom on the shop floor. Or, uh, one of those types of stories worked a long time in the service department. They kind of, I went to college. I did that sort of thing. And when I got here um, at first, I did not like the crane business because I didn't know it. So I got two degrees from Northern Illinois University. And then when I got here, I went back to school at Moraine Valley Community College. And I took welding and I took machine shop and I took industrial controls and AutoCAD because I needed to know what it was that we actually did. So it doesn't matter how good you are in, in, at sales. If you don't understand the product, you're, you're not going to get you're, you're not going to get very far. And since I was eventually going to be um, responsible for producing the product on top of it, I, I had a, a more of an interest to definitely learn about it for sure. Um, so. I kind of started out in that. And then what I did after that was I became what was called a regional sales manager. Uh, I was a regional sales manager and I had a territory that was basically uh, Indiana, Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Michigan. Um, I went into that territory. That territory had gotten a little dilapidated because we didn't have a salesman covering that from inside that territory. It was kind of from inside USCO. Um, so I went back out. I found new distribution. I revitalized some distribution that we already had. And I started creating a really good presence for us there in, in that market. Um, I did that through a couple different things. Um, I did that through implementing my own CRM system. Um, I did that through believing in the power of follow-up. Um, I did that through believing in the power of relationships. And what I mean by that kind of, you know, just going from that same old guy thing that, you know, I did when I was working the Chicago market is the more you're in front of people, and the more you get to know people on a personal level, the more people want to work with you. You know, people want to work with their friends, essentially, right? So if I was the vendor that was always coming out and saying, let's go make customer calls, let's do this, let's do that, it seemed to, you know, gain a lot of traction. And then our product is not a product where you can just, you know, sit there and put it in a catalog and, and sell it. It's an engineered piece of equipment. So a lot of what I also did too was training other distributors and training other guys how to look at application and what to measure and when to use this and when to use that, um, you know, when this worked and when this didn't. So that was kind of a lot of what I did. So I spent a lot of time on the road. Um, my wife wasn't too happy about that. She was my, my fiance or girlfriend at the time, depending on when you look at it, but uh, she wasn't too happy about that. But I spent a lot of time on the road and a lot of time developing relationships and developing um, a lot of contacts that, you know, we still do work with uh, today. Um, so. That's kind of where I went from there. And then uh, after that, uh, we had a very good salesman in another territory who took over a, a national, man, uh, national sales manager role. Um, he was not fit for that role. He was better as a salesperson. 
Uh, he didn't have the uh, the management capabilities that that were required. It's not a knock against him. He was a great sales guy. Um, it just wasn't a good fit for him to move on because the what drove him in sales, which was a great thing, was what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And some of your best sales guys are what's in it for me. So when now all of a sudden you're trying to manage other people, what's in it for you is you're trying to drive other people. And then I found that I actually had a knack for that and I was good at it. So I was moved into the uh, national sales manager position and uh, he kind of unfortunately uh, decided to move on. Uh, didn't really want to work for me, I think, which is which is fine. He, he worked for my dad well. Um, and then after I became national sales manager, um, you know, my dad, he was probably in his late 50s when that happened. I did that probably for around five, six years. And then uh, recently, end of last year, he retired. And so um, I became a president of, a, of the company. Any Anytime there's a gener- like generations, you know, uh, ownership, there's always the, is there a stigmatism to that? Because it's like, oh, you know, Ryan becomes president because, you know, his dad, right? Like this, you know, this, you got to prove yourself. Like, did you feel that happen? Like, you know, in your experience, like, did you see like, oh man, like, like the sales guy, like maybe he didn't want to work for you because like, did he have that? kind of mentality maybe, or is that a hurdle you had to get through? So early on, I had to, I had to get through that, right? I, I definitely had the, uh, the silver spoon uh, syndrome going on here. And uh, it took a long time to uh, build trust and to uh, create, um, I guess, respect uh, would be a, a better way to put it. A lot of people thought here that the reason why I was doing as well as I was, was because I was handed special treatment and, uh, and those types of things. And you've got certain employees where when you, you know, you develop um, relationships and you, you show your value um, that kind of naturally comes along and you've got other employees that, you know, they're the old guard and that's just how they're going to feel. And there's not really much you can do about it. And eventually you wake up one day and say, you know, you work for me and it's either we're going to get that going and that's going to work or it's, it's not. Um, but, you know, what I would say to somebody who's making that transition is, you know, work for your people harder than they work for you. And that will be a great way to show that value and to earn that respect, no matter how you came into a, into a business. That's, that's good. That's a good life lesson, I feel like, you know, work hard, give, you know, give out. So, then like culturally, is that just the culture of the company or actually what, you know, what is, what, you know, how do you see culture? Like, how does that affect? I mean, obviously you're big on relationships. You think building up your people is super important. You think that's, that's a big key to success for the company. So like, what's, what is culture for you? Like, how does that kind of fit into this? So culture, I think is, is extre- extremely important. Uh, important. It's, it's how a business gets driven and how it, in my opinion, succeeds. You know, we're a family company, right? So I can go back and I can tell you that, you know, our, our office manager is the, uh, our, our office manager and our plant manager are now connected through family because my lead electrician and my uh, uh, AR, uh, AR person, uh, they got married and had a couple of kids. Um, you know, we've got, my plant manager has six brothers. I think at one point, all of them work here. Um, we've had several family work here. So it's a very family uh, environment. And we like that. Um, that, that, that. That's a good thing. Um, the other thing I would say about, you know, culture is um, it kind of drives also what the performance is going to be 
you know, for the rest of the community uh, in your company, right? So if you're a culture where um, it's going to be, hey, we're all pulling that rope in the same direction for the customer, you know, everybody's trying to work for everybody. It's a very happy environment and everybody wants to, everybody wants to be there. If you've got people in your company that are sitting there going, you know, my phrase that I can't stand, it's not my job, um, you know, then it creates a whole different kind of environment. And we went, you know, we went, we went through some of that. And, and what I, what I mean by it's, it's not my job is it's, you know, you're not asking your purchasing guy to go out and fabricate steel, but you might be asking your purchasing guy to do some extra order entry or to do some interviews for a position that's similar, or you're changing a process and you're now asking them to go along with that type of process. So that might be, you know, an example of something like that. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, definitely, you know, when you're talking about uh, not my job, right? Uh, and I've definitely heard that phrase uh, on construction sites. Um, it, you know, taking away the bureaucracy and, you know, because obviously with your culture, you're trying to do the best that you can for your clients. Well, sometimes weird things just come up you've never encountered before. Time to solve the problem, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So very cool. So obviously you, you're going to be a different leader than your dad and he's a different leader than his dad. And so, you know, like down the line, what, what changes in culture kind of happened when, when you took over, when you had, you know, full, full authority. So my, my grandfather's, my grandfather's goal who was after my great grandfather who started the company, his goal was always to do a million dollars in sales. My father's goal was always to do $10 million in sales. And my goal is a little loftier than, uh, than that. Um, the, the way that my father did it from my, my grandfather was uh, he basically took the business from a local Chicago business to a regional um, Midwest business, starting to sell through distribution, uh, you know, our cranes and runways and, and other products and services. Uh, and the way that I've done it is I've expanded that now into a national market. Um, so we sell all the way from, you know, New York to California, to Alaska, to, to Texas, to Florida. So, you know, we, we cover, cover the gamut. So we've opened up more distribution, opened up more sales channels, uh, that type of thing. And one of the things that was a big change, you know, my dad went through with my grandfather, you know, my grandfather never had a computer, right? He had typewriters and and got introduced to a fax machine and that kind of thing. So my dad bought, you know, first Tandy 1000 and, you know, we had a computer and we're doing accounting on computers and stuff, but my dad took it to a certain place and then kind of stopped. And when I got into the role, I made some changes almost immediately. So we had already changed over our ERP system. Uh, that was a huge, painful thing. And we're still doing tweaks to it all the time, but we had no CRM system. We did all of our quotations based off of paper and uh, backup. I mean, my dad had a works database, a flat database that, you know, that, that we did all of our, our quoting out of and did all of our backup on, on paper sheets. Um, our production, our bill of materials were all done on paper. We had a lot of paper, a lot of paper. And so some of the things, um, all of our HR was really outdated. Um, our handbook was maybe nine pages. I mean, it was... It needed a lot of help. So what I did when I walked into the role was I instantly got us on a better HR platform. 
Um, I instantly got us on a better payroll platform. Um, I got us on a, a, a better handbook and working with attorneys to get that done. Um, I got everything into an electronic format for our quoting system and how we do quotes. So I just kind of updated us. Um, I took us from an on-prem server that didn't do very much to a complete cloud system where, you know, we're using Azure and OneDrive and uh, all that kind of good stuff. So uh, there was just a lot of, let's take it from this and move it to this so that we can grow it. I mean, all of our IP is our drawings, right? So, and all of our crane files and everything else, it's all still sitting in a file cabinet that's not too far from me, an entire room that's filled back to, you know, 1970 something of blueprints and drawings. Well, one of the things that I did was I hired an intern and I said, okay, your job is going to be to organize all this and got a scanner and just had them scan and scan and scan because, you know, we lose that room. We lose our entire history and, and that's a huge problem. So things like that. And with employees that have been with you for 30 plus years, and now you're telling them to do this instead of this, that's where a lot of that, not my job doesn't, you know, really kind of surfaces on itself to the point of where you almost have to go, listen, this is your job and this is what we're doing now. And that transition and that learning, you know, you've got people who are typing like this, right? And you've got people who copy, cut and paste using a keyboard shortcut is like magic. So trying to get them to understand what they now need to do and how to do it, change was a very big problem and a very uh, a big hurdle overcome and it took a while and there were some employees who you know i mean still have problems with it and then there's some people who see a value in that once they see the value in that you demonstrate that then they want to learn and they want to get on board and they want to understand this is a better way to do it and here's why and you know that kind of thing so you, you get a little bit of a little bit of both but i mean going from all that paper and going from that to moving to that was a, a huge huge problem that was a very large challenge that I've been going through over the last, I would say, probably a year and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot to change in a small time frame. <laughs> did, so I, I'm curious, did, did you try making changes with your dad there? So what I originally did was any changes that I made, I did them for myself. So I implemented my own CRM system that I started working with, which now my entire sales team uses and we use other places, but, but everything I did, I R and D kind of myself. Cause every time I'd go to my dad with certain things, he would give me a whole bunch of reasons of why he didn't like it, why he liked the original, you know, that kind of thing. Once I did it myself and then I showed him the value, there were certain things that he would kind of come aboard on. And then once he started going to Florida a whole bunch and I was in that role for quite a while. I did a lot more of just, you know, uh, basically uh, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. Um, there was a lot, lot more of that that went on longer. And, and I think that needs to happen, right? Like you need to step up as that next generation, if that's the route that you're going to kind of like not assert dominance or any of that kind of stuff, but just to realize that, okay, you need to walk into that role here eventually because, you know, when my father retired in the last year, he's gone. He hasn't asked for a PL. He hasn't come back for anything. He is playing golf. He is living his best life. US go sink or swim, you know, whatever you want to do type thing. And if I didn't start doing some of those things, I think that would have probably made me a lot less prepared for, you know, when, when he did walk away. 
it also probably gives him confidence, right? At the time, like he may have been like against the idea or like, oh, you know, like this is not the, the way, but like seeing you take the reins, right? Like that gives him confidence. It's like, yeah, like Ryan's totally going to be okay. Like he's like, he's totally going to be able to take over the company and like do this at a high level. And, you know, probably believes that like, yeah, the things you're going to do are, are going to surpass where, what I did. Like, I, I have to imagine that taking those, you know, you know, I'm going to do this thing and I'll ask for forgiveness later if, if necessary, um, probably gave him confidence too. I think on some things it did. I think on other things it worried him. You know, I got to give my dad a lot of credit because early on there was a lot of like, you know, you got to put on the dad hat, you got to put on the work hat. He would tell me kind of the same thing. We didn't understand that relationship because a lot of family companies that work together don't have that great of a relationship sometimes. Sometimes they really do. Like we were lucky and I consider my dad to be one of my best friends. But a lot of other companies, there's a lot of, you know, this that that goes on, a lot of back and forth and a lot of a lot of headbutting. So I give my dad a ton of credit because he was really good at taking that transition from I'm his child, you know, I've got three kids of my own, and going, okay, now he's more my peer and my employee. And then eventually he's more my peer and you know, he's gonna be the successor and and that kind of thing. So for his own personality and, you know, he did it through sarcasm and criticism, but that's just the way my dad is. And that's fine. I use that as, as fuel, not as, I use that as fuel, not as, you know, go cry in the corner type thing. But, uh, you know, him is his ability to be able to do that, I think gives him a lot of credit. A little Southside Chicago, a little Southside Chicago culture. Uh, do you feel... Uh, I don't know if your children uh, will be in the business or not, but if they would be now reflecting back to what you just did with your dad, uh, how do you feel about that? You know, when you're old enough to go play golf or, uh, you know, to go to Florida or whatnot, how do you feel about that? Well, I just thought of this and I want to take this time to say that all the private equity companies out there right now, stop calling me because my kids are going to have the opportunity if they want it. I'm not taking your calls. Staying a family company till my children decide that they don't want to go this route. That's going to be another 20 years or so. So leave me alone. So they got time. They they got the PE firms got time to uh to wait. Okay. So uh, going back to your, your question, well, is tell you the truth. I mean, I I really I really don't know, you know. I mean, like my my oldest, my son is seven, my one daughter's five, and my other daughter's two and a half, you know. Right now we're trying to get the young one out of diapers. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to, I'm going to think in the future. I, I, I guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of do uh, what I think is right. And, and what I think is right is my kids need to work hard. Um, they need to realize that they're not special. They're special to, to you know, me and my wife and their and grandparents and cousins, like that, but to the rest of the world, they're not special. They got to work hard. They got to they got to drive forward. You know, they will be given opportunities based on the life that, that, that they're in, but they've got to do something with those opportunities. And I think I'll probably continue to treat them that way where, you know, I never let them win at sports. I never let my two and a half year old win at sports. You know, I, I want them to, I want them to have that. Okay, I got to be dead. I got to be dead. You know, my seven-year-old, we go out and play golf every Sunday after, after church. And, you know, he, he gets a par and then we celebrate it. And it's like the coolest thing ever. And, you know, he gets a nine. It's like, okay, you know, move on to the next one, that kind of thing, you know, whatever. But it's, I'm never sitting there going, you got a nine and you did a good job. I'm going, okay, we need to work harder. We need to, you know, we need to do more. And I, I think I'll probably be that same way.
throughout all my kids' lives. And, and they'll have to prove to me that they're ready, that, that that's what they want. You know, they'll be given that opportunity, but they'll, they'll have to prove themselves. And I'm sure I had to do a lot of that with my dad, too. Very cool reflection. It'd be wild to see in the future if the, the one that's currently in diapers, uh, they'll, they'll have this recording to say, oh, yeah, I, I own that company now, perhaps. <laughs> Which would be really funny. That would be cool. Oh, wow. Um, so, okay. So a lot, a lot of definitely, fam- definitely get the family being important, obviously not just yours, but also other connections um, with the family. So, you know, how does that kind of play into like hiring and firing stuff, right? Like there's a lot of times that when we get into the, well, you know, they're part of the family or there's somebody and it's like, maybe it's the right person for the job maybe it's they're related uh like what's your philosophy on hiring and firing so we typically look to other friends and family first um we've done a lot of that in the past um i let all my managers run their own departments let them hire and let go people who they feel work best for them Um, i don't have time to do all that and frankly i'm not very good at it Um, i've hired several people in my life and maybe a fifth of them have actually stayed and been good and been uh, been good hires. Uh, I have learned that that is not something that is not my skill set. So if I've got other people that are better at that, then uh, then then that's something that I definitely want them to take over. I, I think it's part of my sales background that that makes me bad at it because I instantly think that somebody based on their resume is going to be a good fit, and so I start trying to sell them. Um, on the job. And that's something that I really have to kind of back off of. So when we are hiring for a a more important, not more important, more responsible position, higher paying position, um, I'm always in there on the kind of like the last interviews based on the candidates that they've, you know, weeded down, but I'm in the corner, I'm listening, I'm getting my own impression. I'm trying not to talk too much and I'm letting things kind of happen because if I interject, it's it's going to create it's going to create problems. So so I've learned that that is not my skill set um, at all, and and I've got other people that are that are better at that than I am. That's super powerful uh, to understand what your strengths and what your weaknesses are, uh, and delegate what you're weak at. That's I mean, there's a lot of people out there that don't realize that or don't have that awareness, uh, and it hurts them, right? So by recognizing that obviously a reason why you're able to scale. Hire enough bad employees and you recognize it pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> that brings up the other side, right? Like, you know, what do you, what do you see what happens when there's just the wrong person there? Like what, what, what happens to the, the company? And obviously we've talked about culture and being important. So what happens when a toxic person's at the company? Starts eroding that culture right away. Um, you know, when, when they first get hired and when they first come on, you don't see it, but other people do. And so it's very important to communicate with your management team, um, and with other people in other departments as to what's going on, because you're hundred percent right. You hire somebody, you bring them on and they start, people don't want to come to work. People don't want to do their job. People don't want to be here. It just becomes a job and that's it. Go home and that, that type of thing. You know, we, we just had the issue in our service department, uh, where we let go, uh, several people. They, they were very good at what they did. They worked here for a, a long time, but every new hire that we we got, they'd be around for two or three months and they'd be gone because they weren't getting trained. They were being treated poorly. 
And these people were creating an environment that just made people not want to be here. And that, that eroded basically our service department over several years. And so we just went through kind of a purging to, to get rid of that toxicity because you, you think that somebody's really good at their job and they're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of good effort, but if they don't get along with the other people that they work with and they create a bad environment for that, it doesn't matter how good they are because you want everybody to be good. You want everybody working. I mean, you're going to have A's, B's and C's and that kind of thing, but you want everybody to be able to, to work together because it's just going to make other high performing people just not want to be there. Yeah. That, um, that's a hard one for a lot of people though. Right. Cause it's like, especially when you think of salespeople, like this become this becomes very apparent because like, if you're a, if you're a moneymaker, like if you're a rainmaker, but you are just really toxic. Like you are so horribly toxic. That makes it very, really hard. How do you, how do you come to terms with that? I mean, I, I you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, you want culture to be good, but like, man, like if they bring in a, you know, you know, a, a fifth of your rev, like, how do you, how do you make that decision? I think the first thing you do is can you isolate them? Right. <laughs> can you put them on an Island? <laughs> cause you, cause you want to keep them if you can, if you can't put them on an Island, you've got a very difficult decision to make because the question is they bring in a fifth of your revenue right now, but what could you be bringing in if you had three or four guys that were maybe not as good as that individual, but were pretty close and they all work together well. So I think it also kind of depends on the type of sales position you're talking about. You know, if that salesman is talking with a lot of your team all the time and, you know, working with individuals all the time, then, then yeah, I think that, that camaraderie has to go there. But the other thing too is, you know, if they're a rainmaker and they're really good at what they're doing, um, you know, they're probably really good at faking it at least um, as to uh, like them and that kind of thing. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Okay. So maybe focus a little more on that. Say, hey, fake it till you make it type thing. I, 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 I don't know. But, uh, but I guess that would be kind of, you know, this was more, uh, not in a sales aspect. We've we've had more of those issues from a uh, from a service aspect and a production aspect, where these people are working with other people all the time, and when they're creating that toxic environment in that community, that sub community of your company, that's the real problem. That's the that's the issue. What with your hiring, uh, have you created? Or have your managers created a, uh, a hiring process, like a written process or anything like that? Or is it something that everyone just instinctually knows how to go through? So typically the way our hiring works is um, we first reach out to friends and family. Because if there's somebody who knows somebody that already has an idea of who they are and how they're going to be, um, that kind of fits for our culture pretty well. Um, if we have to go out, we go out the normal channels. Everybody does, you know different recruiting websites, different headhunters, that kind of thing, what everybody, what everybody does. Then typically what I do is we have a policy where we never pass a phone interview. We never do an individual interview. Um, and those phone interviews are recorded. So we're, you know, paying attention to the EEOC stuff and all that, because that has become a much more prevalent thing, especially with the market that's out there now. Uh, and then typically if it's an in-person interview, there's always two people in the interview. So it would be the manager of the department that is being hired for. And then it would also be, um, you know, maybe somebody in HR 
or somebody else that's a, another manager of another department kind of giving their feedback uh, as well. Uh, when it gets to a final interview, that's typically when I would sit in, depending on the position, if it's for a welder or something, then it typically doesn't go past that and they get hired on. Or, But if it's somebody that's going to be um, a more uh, involved position, dealing with money or anything like that, then then usually I would sit in a, in, a, in a final interview and give my final thoughts before, you know, we offer, we offer employment. So uh, it's definitely, uh, I mean, having a process around employment uh, creates, I mean, it helps with understanding uh, do personalities and culture clash or do they cohese, right? And if it's cohesive, right? And I'm sure there are indicators uh, around that. So, um, no, I want to move on a little bit about technology. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, kind of some of the technology that you're using. Um, how do you just go through a little bit? How do you leverage technology in your business uh, to help you scale or to help you, you know, uh, be successful? Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Anything that is going to make me more efficient or automate something, I am willing to try. I am willing to R and D. I am willing to look at. Because time is probably the most precious thing that you have. Um, and anything that's going to get me time back, make some mundane task go faster or automate, I'm all about. So when I first started implementing, you know, I, I started with a CRM system. You know, I started with a CRM system and then I went to getting our quotes to be able to be done electronically versus being pen and paper. Because Guys used to literally drive around with, you know, file cabinets in their trunks and copies and copies of quotes in both their office and their trunks. So they would go on the ropes, you know, four or five states or whatever it is, and they would have copies of all their stuff. And then they would go out and do stuff on the road. Then they come back and make copies of it. So we were killing trees literally left and right. Every single one of my sales guys now, they have a, they have a laptop, they have a phone, and they have an iPad. And they are completely paperless. So they use different apps on the iPad to go out and take measurements and take notes and pictures and work on AutoCAD drawings and that type of thing. They've got a laptop and they've got their phone and that's the tools that they have. And one of the beautiful things about that is, you know, God forbid that laptop or that, or that uh, iPad falls down in a factory off of, you know, 30 foot high off a crane or something, it breaks into a million pieces. You go turn on another iPad, log into your account, all your stuff is is right there. Now you don't want that to happen too much because it gets very expensive. But you get my you, you get my point. So putting everything that you can in a cloud or electronic, as long as it's protected from a cybersecurity standpoint, is a very very major step to to take and is is very good. Um, you know, going back to the CRM system, you know, we used to have a Rolodex and cards and you you know write down notes on the back of the cards and stuff when you were trying to follow up with people everything was up here the more you can get out of your head and into a system the more room you allow in your head for other and more important more important things um so i'm big on anything that you know anything that that automates or makes something more efficient i'll, I'll take our hr you know we jump to a new hr platform everything we used to do used to be paper we have employee, you know, we still have employee files and file cabinet and that kind of thing, but that's all we had. So now we've got an HR platform where any type of discipline goes in there, any type of recommendations, performance reviews, 
Um, you know, they can change their own direct deposits and change their beneficiaries and pick their insurance and all that stuff. The employee can do it right in their own little portal, see their pay. You know, they wanted to do it before they all had to go through the HR manager. She spent half her time sitting there and changing direct deposits and somebody got married and somebody had a baby. And, you know, every single year we do insurance, everybody had to go out in her office and fill out all the insurance paperwork and stuff. You know, that's all stuff that, that is unnecessary with the technology that, that, that we have today. Um, you know, with all the technology changes, uh, did you have any struggles uh, that you experienced when rolling out new technology? Um, I started drinking more. Because a lot of the construction industry got burned. <laughs> I'm a single malt scotch guy and I uh, definitely started drinking more. Um, one of the things that I look at for all new employees, and I am I stress this big time, is an employee must know how to use a computer. An employee must not just know Word and Microsoft. An employee must actually know how to use a computer. So they need to understand how a computer works and what it does and, um, you know, what you can do with it, not just go into a word processing program. And that's it. Because I have spent so much time, you know, we hire out IT for major problems with the cloud and that kind of thing. But somebody's got a problem with their box or somebody's got a problem with a program or something that they call me. So I spend way too much time going down and sitting there and going, okay, you got to click this box and you got to do this and you got to do this. And we've done all the training for everything else like that. They still come to me. So yes, there's been a lot of, lot of, you know, and it's, it's mostly people, I would say over the age of, I, I used to say 40, but I can't say 40 anymore because I'm 40. Um, but I would say, it used to be people over the age of 40. Now I'd say it's probably over the age of, you know, 50 to 55 um, that are still in organizations. They still have a lot of problems with the way that business has gone. And they're great employees and they're, and they're wonderful, but they have a real issue with, you know, that type of change and getting them to get on board with that and to learn to use it instead of just a, I have to, this is my job and a, this is actually going to help me. That's a hard transition, but it's one that's very necessary because it will make them more efficient. It will give them more time instead of them just being frustrated. This didn't open, this didn't work, this didn't, this didn't that. I mean, you know, look at my two and a half year old. She, she runs an iPad like a, like a genius already, you know, she's back and forth into different programs and doing everything and stuff. You know, I get my, uh, my, my mom or her, her, her uh, Nana, who she sits there and looks at an iPad and has a hard time getting on FaceTime. So, you know, it's just, it's a lot of that's just generational too, right? Uh, it's a, it's a cool uh, comparison actually uh, looking at, I mean, that used to be the, I don't know how to work by VCR. The young kids knew how to deal with the VCR and the uh, parents had no idea. So now we're talking about iPads and computers versus, uh, versus VCRs. So kind of an interesting uh, interesting uh, insight. So last question. If you could go back 20 years, what would you tell yourself? Invest in your 401k. <laughs> so obviously everyone wants to, you know, invest in Apple, uh, invest in Google 20 years ago and, 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 and Microsoft 20 years ago, because at this point, every, anyone that invested any serious money in that would be millionaires, right? So was there, is there anything else? So, you know, I was a typical 
20 year old, just like anybody else. I mean, if I could go back 20 years and, 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 you know, tell myself from, you know, 20 years ago or, or whatnot, I, I don't know if my, myself would listen, you know, I mean, I was at that age where I was in college, I was going out to bars, I was doing that kind of thing and stuff. I was having a lot of fun. If my 40 year old self came here and said, you know, do this, this, and this, there might be certain tidbits that I'd take on, but I think a lot of those life lessons you just got to kind of learn through time because at 20, I was a totally different person than, than I am now. But the one thing I would definitely tell myself is invest in your 401k. So uh, investment, and I'm sure even if I, because I'm same age as you, uh, if I were to reflect back, uh, I think I would agree with you. The 401k, probably a big deal. Um, uh, now, for the young listeners that are out there, why? Growth, of course. Compound interest. Absolutely. You put that money in when you're 20 and you get to your 60, there's going to be a lot more money in that pot than if you start putting money in when you're 30 and you get to your 60. It's unbelievable. The exponential growth and the, the compound interest that you get on time is, is crazy. I do like the fact that 20-year-old Ryan would be like, get out of here, old man, Ryan. I ain't got time. I ain't got time to talk to you. I got things to do. Oh yeah, no, he would. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, uh, so we will we'll throw all your uh, social links and all that stuff in our show notes. Is uh, there anything else you want to tell the people uh, before we sign off? Uh, I want to thank you guys, Will and Justin, for having me on. I really enjoyed the experience. Um, I think you guys run a a great podca uh, podcast. Um, if anybody's out there looking for overhead cranes. You know, USCO Cranes has been around for 101 years. We build a great product and we'd be perfectly happy to uh, to look at what you got and see how we can help. Well, then thank you for uh, uh, thank you for your insight and wisdom there. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right. Well, uh, Ryan, you've been fabulous. So thank you for, for joining us. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. All right. All right. Till next time. Adios. Adios. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.